Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water, and he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mount of God. There he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall appoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat Abel Meholah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehil, Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. The word of the Lord. What a delight to be here uh, and to be a part of the spiritual family that has been so critical for my own uh, family, Liz and family, as well as friends that we have here. Uh, so during the time that I spent in seminary, Regent College in Vancouver, uh, I had an Irish friend 
who really had this mischievous sense of humor. And he decided one day to play a joke on the school's receptionist. Uh, she was somewhat new to the job and still getting used to the odd requests and questions that would often come to the front desk. Well, that year, uh, there was going to be a summer course being offered on the spirituality of medieval mystics. And it was very appropriately and intentionally called Agonies and Ecstasies. Now, pretending to be a happy-go-lucky American, uh, my friend called on the phone and inquired about the course. But he insisted that he just wanted to sign up for the ecstasies, not the agonies part. Now, she explained that the course didn't work this way, that the mystics had both the agonies and ecstasies. But no, he wouldn't have it. He just wanted the ecstasies. And why would she want to give him the agonies? How American. <laughs> Actually, how human it is of us. We want the ecstasies of following Jesus, but not the agonies that sometimes come with life in this world. How are we to understand the agonies of life? How are we to understand even the agonies of following God? God responds to our wounds with grace because in Christ, God himself is a wounded healer. So Elijah in this passage, bears three wounds, which I think all of us will bear at some point in our lives. And I suspect even now we bear at least one of them. In the previous chapter, in chapter 18, Elijah had single-handedly defied and defeated 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah. In a contest with those pagan prophets, Elijah prayed to the Lord, who then sent down fire from heaven and burned up the sacrifice. And then he prayed to the Lord again, who sent rain to end a drought. That is some extraordinary connection with God and a demonstration of power. Now, of course, that chapter inspires me. But today's chapter... Today's story is a story that encourages me. See, after his greatest spiritual victory, this rugged prophet, this prophet that Jesus himself in his transfiguration would meet, this rugged prophet was overcome with exhaustion, not elation. Elijah was deeply wounded in spirit and in mind. So we read in verse 1, Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. She doesn't even call a curse upon him. She calls a curse upon herself if she does not get the job done. And then he was afraid, and he rose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. Jezebel's threat does what the prophets of Baal could not do. It causes Elijah to have a panic attack. In verse 3, the passage says he was afraid, and he rose, and he ran for his life. And in, in the original Hebrew, it reads like this, Vayar, Vayakum, Vayelech. The text literally reads, 
like a panic attack. And moreover, in fleeing from Mark Como to Beersheba and Judah, Elijah, he flees the entire length of Canaan from the top of a mountain in the north part of the country to the beginning of the desert in the south part of the country. He gets as far away as possible physically. And he also leaves the political domain of Israel for the kingdom of Judah. He even leaves his trusted servant to go alone in the Sinai wilderness. He has such a panic attack. He is so freaked out. Fear causes him to flee physically, politically, relationally. And then we find, to his fear, Elijah adds also a sense of failure. But he himself, verse 4, went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, it is enough now. Oh, Lord, take my life, for I am no better than my father's. Now, a broom bush is a place of last resort. It's a scraggly tree that provides scant shade under a blazing sun. But sometimes when you're in a desert, that is all you can get. And so he finds a broom tree to hide under. No wonder the the broom tree occurs elsewhere in the Bible as this image of desolation and despair in Job and in the Psalms. This kind of honesty in the biblical story, it's just shocking. Because we don't put our failures on display. We put our successes on our resumes. We carefully curate our social media posts, hoping those things will define us, or at least convince the world that that is how we are to be defined. Yet, for many of us, probably for all of us, the fear of failure often drives us. And the shame of failure can often destroy us. Wow, aren't you glad you came this morning? <laughs> but it, there's another wound. If it's, not, if it's not fear, if it's not failure, there's also the wound of forsakenness. Verse 9, Then he came to a cave and lodged in it, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I alone, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Maybe most devastating of all is this sense that Elijah had to deal with his fears, his sense of failure, all alone. We have come out of a pandemic, but perhaps the worst part of the pandemic is not the virus, but the loneliness. The mental health challenges that exist all throughout our country, our world, our communities, and probably, yes, even here in our churches. I suspect all of us, and I know I certainly have, have lain in bed 
processing the burdens of the day and seeing a wound, maybe small, maybe gaping, of fear or failure or forsakenness, if we are honest, this is sometimes all we have to give. In his classic work, The Wounded Healer, Henry Nouwen offers this profound assessment of human existence. Nobody escapes being wounded. We are all wounded people, whether physically, emotionally, mentally, or spiritually. The main question is not how we can hide our wounds so we don't have to be embarrassed, but how can we put our woundedness in the service of others? When our wounds cease to be a source of shame and become a source of healing, we have become wounded healers. So how, how are you wounded? What are the wounds that have been inflicted upon you? What are the wounds that you've inflicted upon others? What are the wounds of some of the closest people in your life that they bear? What would it mean for us to bring those things to the Lord, even this day, that when we are offered communion, the body and blood of Jesus, that we offer God back our wounds to recognize that in the woundedness of Christ, we have met a healer. God tends to the wounds of fear, failure, and forsakenness with the three graces of rest, revelation, and relationships. God grants rest to the exhausted Elijah. I love this. Verse 4. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord. Take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down under a broom tree. Let's just pause here. It, it is such a natural response that when we encounter someone who's going through difficulties, that the Christian thing to do is try to quote a Bible verse at them to make it better or to recommend a book to read or a retreat to go to. And all, you know, all those things are important. And you would think that a scripture verse or a retreat or maybe even some kind of extraordinary miracle of, that would put God front and center would be the response. But no, what does God do? He lets Elijah sleep. And then he feeds them. And then he does it again. And he feeds them. Behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Rise and eat and look. Behold, there was at his head a keg baked on hot stones and a jar of water. He ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came to him a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food for 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mount of God. The remarkable thing about this interaction is just how unremarkable it is. Here the grace of God appears in the simple gift of sleep and food. God made us with physical bodies, physical needs, and he gives us physical rest. We're embodied creatures. And God does this in two rounds. The first round is to restore Elijah from his past labor. You're exhausted. But this simply gets Elijah back to neutral. It's like our attempt on Saturday to sleep in because the whole week has been exhausted. That just gets us back, at best, to neutral. This second round of sleep, food, is because the journey is too great. The angel of God wishes to prepare him for what is 
the next stage? What would it mean for us to build rhythms, spiritual, physical rhythms in our lives of rest that rejuvenate us from the past labors, but doesn't simply get us back to neutral, that would so fill our reservoirs that we would be prepared and ready for whatever God has in store for us next. And frankly, I, and I guess a lot of the type A people who live in northern Virginia are really, really, really bad at this. We're just bad at this. Bad at not the unwinding with entertainment. What's the latest thing on Netflix or Amazon or Hulu? We can do that, but a soul rest, a body rest. God wants to grant us this as a grace. And then he adds to the grace of rest, the grace of revelation. Verse 9, he came to a cave and lodged in it, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I alone, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, go out, stand on the mount before the Lord, and behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore through the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. Elijah returns to the scene of God's greatest revelation in the Old Testament. When God appeared to Moses on Mount Horeb, also called Mount Sinai, revealed his name, gave his law, established his covenant, commissioned his people. I mean, this was the place where it all happened. And the narrative builds with this anticipation by reinforcing these connections between Elijah and Moses. There's a reason why both showed up to Jesus' transfiguration. Forty days of travel, wind, earthquake, fire, a cave to hide in. This is what happened to Moses as well. Maybe lightning will strike again. Elijah thinks. Maybe God will show up in glorious power yet again, and he will make sense of all the fear and failure and forsakenness that I encounter. But God doesn't show up in the way that he would have expected. In fact, we're actually not even really sure how God showed up in this passage. The phrase, the sound of a low whisper, in other Bible translations are a gentle whisper, a still small voice, the sound of a gentle blowing, or Simon and Garfunkel's translation, the sound of silence, like literally. I think this phrase is something like what we mean when we say it was a deafening silence. In other words, it was a silence so profound that you have to lean in to listen. I suspect that God has a moment of silence for you in which he is simply asking you to lean in and pay attention to await 
a revelation of who he is in a fresh way. And then God gives him the next grace of relationships. Doesn't leave him alone. He gives him friends for the journey. We read this in verse 15 and on. He gives him Haziel to be an ally in Syria. Elisha to be his partner and protege. And he lets him know that there are still 7,000 in Israel. 7,000 faithful people who have not bowed the knee or kissed the idol in worship. He is not alone if he were just to have the eyes to see. God gives us this common grace of rest, this special grace of revelation, and, and now he adds this communal grace of relationship. We need all of those, and God provides them. And he does it because he himself is a wounded healer. Yeah, of course I want God to show up in my life with glorious power to be the resurrection and the life. But sometimes I find the most encouraging thing about God is that he suffers with me. As the prophet Isaiah says in chapter 53, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty. This is our Savior, that we should look at him. No beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrow, acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hide their faces. I'm not sure how many followers he would have had on social media. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs. He has carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. We are healed. Jesus is the wounded healer. When you come up to take communion today, recognize that you are receiving the body and the blood of a wounded healer. Whatever your wounds may be, he meets you deeply. God responds to the wounds of our lives with grace because Christ himself is a wounded healer. As a priest working in the neighborhood with murderous gang activity in Los Angeles, uh, Gregory Boyle sought to provide jobs, training, encouragement to the youth of the area. And he writes about some of those experiences in a book called Tattoos on the Heart. Boyle tells a specific story about a 15-year-old gang member named Rigo who was preparing for a worship service for incarcerated youth. When, when Boyle asked it, Rigo if his father would be coming to this worship service, the boy responded, nah, he, he's a heroin addict and he's never been involved in my life. In fact, he used to beat me. Then something snapped in Rigo. And he shared, I was in fourth grade. 
and was sent home in the middle of the day. My dad said, why did they send you home? And I said, if I tell you, promise you won't hit me. And he said, I'm your father. Of course I won't hit you. Then Rigo just began to sob and rock back and forth until he can finally calm down and, and tell Boyle, he beat me with a pipe. Then, then Boyle asked about his mom. And Rigo pointed to a small woman and said, that's her over there. There was no one like her. I've been locked up for a year and a half, and she comes to see me every Sunday. And you know how many buses she has to take to get here? Seven buses. Seven buses. Imagine that. God has taken a very long journey to get to you. His birth on Christmas, his meals with sinners, his healing of the sick, his death on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins, even in his resurrection when he declares victory, he does it by showing up to his disciples and saying, see here the wounds in my hand and in my side. Touch them. Doubt no longer, but believe. And then he gives them the benediction in that room. Peace to you. God, our wounded healer, has taken a long journey. Has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. And today, in your wounds... He is here to meet you. Let us pray. Come to me, all who labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I, I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden light. In the name of Jesus who invites us today. Amen. Come on.
Savior's bounty taste. Behold an ever-failing storm for every willing guest. Um, and Walter, let me invite you up here because I wanted to ha give a chance for you to share a little bit more about... Um, some of the work that you do to highlight it, because not everyone knows um, mm -hmm. some of the different things. So I'm just very grateful for you to uh, being here. Um, glad that uh, you could share God's word with us. But you're the president of the National Association of Evangelicals. Mm -hmm. And first, I just wanted to, the NAE, tell us what that is. Yeah. A lot of people out here are probably like, I've never heard of that. So yeah. just help us to know what the NAE is. Yeah, thanks, Johnny. Um, so it started in 1942, and in a context not too dissimilar from what we have right now. The world had gone through a pandemic uh, in 1918, followed by a Great Depression, World War. There were these debates between theological liberalism and fundamentalism, and the question of cultural engagement uh, was really at the fore in culture wars, the own versions of that in the 30s under the tremendous strains of, again, pandemic, looming global war, uh, economic distress. And a group of Christian leaders wanted a third way, a different way, from not disengagement, not lobbying angry volleys of hatred toward one another, but is there a principled way forward? And the NA was birthed out of that. So it connects nearly 40 different denominations, scores of Christian institutions, nonprofit organizations like World Relief and Compassion International, International Justice Mission, um, yeah, seminaries, it, because it firmly believes, we believe that we are better together mm -hmm. when we collaborate. So we seek to equip churches. Mm -hmm. We have a robust chaplaincy program in all areas of the uh, military as well as hospitals. Uh, and we pursue uh, issues of public policy. We do not engage in political endorsements, but we do seek to represent the public expression of Christian faith hmm. in our life together as a nation. Yeah. And if you'd like to know more, please talk to Walter about it. But I want, to, I want you to also give me something else here. National Association of Evangel Evangelicals. That is a term that's come in and out of popularity. Um, can you tell us what it means, evangelical, and why you hold on to it with the organization or some of the reasons why maybe you held on to it even as it comes in and out of popularity? Yeah, I have to say in 2020, when I began this position, I was offered equal parts congratulations and condolences because <laughs> we, I was stepping into a moment where the term evangelical was profoundly contested and maybe even contaminated. Mm -hmm. uh, and so what do I mean by evangelical and why um, we don't want to give up the term? I mean, simply comes from the Greek, good news. We wish to be good news people. Um, I think there are facets of that, a very firm belief in the authority of Scripture, uh, the need to come to Christ in saving faith. But that faith should result in word and deed proclamation of Jesus, but embodiment of Jesus, and we've actually seen a lot of that evangelical spirit today in the things that you have been pursuing. It's a renewal movement. It's a spiritual renewal movement, so um, there's this sense that as the Spirit of God blows through the church, renewing the commitments to Scripture, to Jesus, to an expression of faith and word and deed, 
um, that there is this kind of good news focus. Um, evangelicalism has had stronger and weaker moments in the life of America. Um, but I was very convinced of the need to hold on to the term evangelical uh, because I, just before I started my position in 2019, I had the chance to represent the National Association of Evangelicals at the World Evangelical Alliance in Jakarta, Indonesia. Uh, 800 delegates from 90 different countries were gathered together. In one of the plenary sessions, uh, there was a panel discussion on what in the world is going on with American evangelicalism. There was delegate from uh, Africa, East Asia, Europe, South America. There was no American, North American on the panel. I, I think the Canadians probably wanted to make it clear. We're, we're not Americans in that <laughs> sense, you know, so don't count us with them. Um, I expected uh, uh, just a time of griping and complaining about American evangelicalism. Mm. And there were some critiques that were lovely, leveled. But most of all, there was a plea. There was a plea by the global evangelical community, some 400 plus million people throughout the world, who said, we need the evangelical church in America to be our partners in the work of the good news. We are praying that God reinvigorates, renews this movement. I walked away from that thinking how American it would be to jettison the term evangelical when it's no longer convenient for us. Hmm. Why in the world would I wish to disassociate myself hmm. from not only the history of the revival and renewal movements of God, but also the breadth of a global community who is literally asking us, hey, stay in the game. Be in this with us. Uh, and so for me, evangelicalism represents not only this renewal that happens over time, but it, it represents a relationship of the global movement of God in honoring Christ. Yeah. That's great. Um, hopefully that all got recorded. Um, <laughs> uh, you have to travel a lot um, with the NAE and across America the past couple of years, um, can you tell me what are some of the challenges you're seeing or, or that the church is dealing with in America? And what are, is there anything encouraging? Uh, give me something, so challenges or difficulties, issues in our, in our church in America and some of the encouragements. Yeah. You know, I think that the church in America is kind of like on this bell curve, right? And the two wings of the bell curve are the two extremes. Uh, some people have called them the, the conflict entrepreneurs. <laughs> they, they know how to take advantage <laughs> of a conflict, and they typically have the megaphones. Uh, and, you know, we know this. We, we are living this. What I am discovering is the middle, the middle that deep, the millions of people who deeply want to understand what does it mean to follow Jesus in the complexity of our moment with a nuanced faith that could rise to the challenge. And uh, that is, um, I think, two sides of the same coin. I think uh, the church in America, and I'm going to speak to evangelicalism in particular, but I think this is also generally more often true than not. We have a very good personal theology. We know what to do with the personal aspects of faith, how to get our devotional life together, maybe even how to deal with our marriages, how to maybe have integrity at work. 
but the public dimension of, of faith. What does it mean to have the structures of a society impacted by Jesus? Um, we, we have tons of books on our bookshelves on prayer and marriage, but what about our public engagement? Where do we send people on a retreat when they can't figure out the nature of our engagement on the big issues of the day, race, bioethics, on and on and on. Um, I think this represents both one of the great weaknesses as well as the needs and opportunities that exist. Developing not just a personal theology, which we're really good at in our churches, but a public theology and the discipleship that requires. I think with this kind of middle there are new alliances and connections that exist. In the last three years, the NAE has become incredibly diverse. New friendships within the African-American, Asian-American, and Hispanic-American churches, connecting with one another and saying, we have a common faith in Christ. We really are evangelicals. Maybe we don't call ourselves evangelicals because of historical reasons, but we really are evangelicals by all the definitions that that, that I've kind of right. thrown out earlier. And we need to be in this together. We cannot allow the conflict entrepreneurs to just have the megaphones. We need to define what it means to follow Jesus uh, as a people profoundly concerned and deeply humble in walking together to meet the greatest needs right now. Amen. Um, let me pray for you, Walter. Thanks. <laughs> Thank you. God, your servant Walter has stepped into this role in leading an organization that has uh, been such a gift to the church in America and the world. Give him grace, rest, um, relationships, your revelation. Empower him, Lord, for carrying this mantle and this burden in this time and that you will supernaturally by your spirit go before him and lead him in all those conversations and decisions he needs to make. Bless his marriage and his children Watch over him each and every day. In the name of Jesus, who died and rose, we pray. Amen.